Revelation chapter 3. And we want to look at the last of the letters that Jesus gives uh, to the churches of Asia, the church at Laodicea. Oftentimes in a Revelation study, uh, this is where we stop. We look at these letters. Uh, we look at chapter 1 with um, an introduction to who Jesus is and how Jesus relates to his church. And then we look at the letters to the churches. And then after that, maybe we're not exactly sure what's going on, and so we stop. Um, and so we're going to keep going, right, after this. And it's going to take us time, but we're going to do it uh, methodically and carefully, and we're going to be better for it because this book promises blessing. That's one of the things that's held out for us in chapter 1 is that uh, those who read the words of this book are blessed. And so we will be better for that. But as we look tonight at the last of these letters, we come to uh, the church at Laodicea, which is the one letter that Jesus writes that has no good word in it. There's nothing good said about the church at Laodicea, and we'll see why as we dive in. But I want us to start and read together uh, these verses. It says in verse 14, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Laodicea is about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It's 100 miles due east of Ephesus. And so what's happened is we've started uh, in the west and we've come along this ancient uh, trade route and mail route and we're delivering the letter. This is a circular letter, uh, which means that it would have been read to the first church and then it would have been copied. The copy would have been kept and the original would have been sent on. And they would have done this over and again, which is how this word has come down to us through the work that God's Spirit has done preserving it through transmission. Laodicea was established uh, because of its place at the confluence of major trade routes. Uh, there's, there's nothing in terms of natural resources that makes Laodicea a great place. It's because of its location to other major cities and other major industries that caused it first to be set, set apart um, as a place for, for a city. Laodicea is a part of a trio of cities that are all very closely connected, Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. You'll know the city of Colossae from Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, and it's Colossae that is the prominent city by the time of the first century, but Laodicea is not without importance, and it's not without mention. We hear Paul talk about Laodicea in Colossians 1 and verse 7. Laodicea was founded in the 3rd century BC uh, as a part of the Seleucid Empire by the king Antiochus II. He named it for his ex-wife Laodicea. In the 1st century, this city becomes an administrative powerhouse. It's a center for uh, justice in the courts in this region of the world. And it will eventually gain prominence for its wealth in terms of the various industries that thrive there and also in terms of its financial centers. There are a lot of banking institutions that rise up in Laodicea. It's a place that has known for a couple of industries particularly, and those come into view in what Jesus has to say to the church itself. 
Uh, one of those industries is its fashion industry. And you might think that that is something uh, of, of importance only in the 21st century. And yet uh, fashion has always been important and there have always been cities that stood out um, for the fashion industry and Laodicea was one of them. The reason for that is because uh, the sheep there grazing and eating, uh, drinking water that had such rich mineral deposits, they had a really, really dark black wool, almost raven black is the way it's described. And so because of that, that leads to the production of cloth that's this deep, dark black color, and it becomes a, a high fashion mark in the world that brings a lot of trade and it brings a lot of wealth. The other industry that uh, Laodicea is known for is its medical uh, industry. It's a, a center of medical instruction. There's a school of medicine there. And it's also a place where, where pharmacy is being practiced. There, uh, there are schools uh, related to some of the temples, uh, pagan temples that... Um, have, have instruction in compounding medicines. They're trying out different remedies for major diseases and they produce these salves that can be used to treat those who are ill. And one of the compounded medicines that they have is a salve for the eyes that heals people with various eye diseases. Both of these things, both the production of cloth and the production of eye medicine come into view as Jesus is talking to his church there about their particular needs. The city in Laodicea had no natural water source. This is incredibly important to understanding the letter. It had no natural water source. The closest water source is six miles away in what is um, modern-day Denizili, but in ancient times was Hierapolis. And Hierapolis is connected to Laodicea in terms of its water sourcing via an aqueduct. And an aqueduct would have run that six-mile stretch bringing water from the hot springs at Hierapolis, hot springs that were noted for their healing quality, and people would go there to find a treatment much like much like people do here in the United States going to, to warm springs back in the day. Hierapolis, known for these, these hot springs, these hot mineral springs, uh, transferred water to Laodicea. So did Colossae. Only Colossae's water was cold. It was pure drinking water. This is the place that they get their water that they can drink. And the problem comes in the confluence of these waters as they reach Laodicea, and particularly it comes from the mineral deposits that come from Hierapolis. When you read the ancient sources about this water, uh, the water was visibly cloudy. When they watched the water run through the aqueducts, they could see the mineral deposits in it. The water wasn't clear coming from Hierapolis, and it did not have sufficient time to travel and cool down to, to cool temperature. Instead, it's lukewarm when it reaches Laodicea. And all of those things become part of understanding what it is that Jesus has to say to this church. The first thing that Jesus does in the letter to the Laodiceans is to tell us about himself. That's what he does in all of these letters. And he does that here in chapter 3 and verse 14. Let me read it to us again. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus says here three things about himself. The first thing that Jesus says is that he is in and of himself the confirmation, the verification of everything the Father has spoken and done. Jesus is the confirmation and verification of everything that the Father has spoken and done. He says, I am the Amen. I'm the one that that offers affirmation to everything that you have heard from the Father about redemption, about salvation, about God's plan to glorify himself in the world. Jesus is the one who provides the truth, the truth that confirms, the truth that sustains, the truth that verifies. He is the yes man. 
The word of the Lord tells us that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And it's that idea that Jesus brings to the fore here as he says, I'm the one that puts the yes on everything God has said. I'm the one who says amen. I'm the one who verifies. Jesus loves this word, amen. He uses it dozens and dozens of times in his ministry we find in the Gospels. Most of all, he loves to say it in John's Gospel twice. More than 20 times, Jesus says, truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen. I want you to understand that this is something you can hang your hat on. It's something that you can hold to be factual. You can trust this, Jesus says. And so Jesus, by saying, I am the amen, is saying you can trust everything that the Father has said. By sending me, the Father is showing you everything that he has spoken and designed and revealed is trustworthy. Jesus, number two, Jesus is the one who communicates the Father's plan of redemption by his enduring obedience to that plan. He communicates the Father's plan of redemption by his enduring obedience to that plan. When Jesus says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, Jesus says, if you want to know what the plan of God is, if you want to know what redemption looks like, if you want to understand how salvation plays itself out, look at me. Because Jesus is the one who does exactly what the Father has willed. The Father's will was to crush the Son. The Father's will was to pour His wrath against my sin and your sin out upon the Son. The Father's will was that the Son would stand in the place of every sinner. The Father's will was that He might cause His Son to be laid waste in our place so that by His death and through His resurrection, redemption might be accomplished. And it is Jesus Christ's obedience to that plan that reveals it in full. If Jesus isn't obedient, if Jesus doesn't do what the Father wills, then you and I don't really understand or receive salvation. It's not accomplished. It's the obedience of Christ. It's his faithful witness. Remember last week we talked about that Jesus is true and that that idea of truth in in the first century, it's not just the Greek idea of truth as a verifiable fact, but it's the Hebrew idea of truth in terms of its conformity to a plan or a design. When Jesus says, I'm the faithful and true witness, he is saying there was a perfect standard, a perfect plan. There was an absolute design, and I have lived up to that. Jesus, by virtue of his obedience, communicates to us what the Father's redemptive plan is. And then Jesus says that he is the one who sources and sustains God's creation. He says there that he is the beginning of God's creation. We have to be careful here. Because if we're not careful in our reading of this, we might think, well, Jesus is the firstborn of creation in terms of of him being the created one. And that's not the case. Jesus is not the created one. He is the holy, uncreated one with the Father and the Spirit. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the firstborn of creation, as Paul says? What does it mean for Jesus to be, as he says here in John's Revelation, the beginning of creation? Well, it means this. It means in terms of Jesus' life in the world, Jesus enjoys priority and primacy of place. Much as David is the firstborn in the house of Israel, he's not the first Israelite, but he's the firstborn. He has primacy of place by virtue of his life. He's the one who enjoys prominence in the story of God's people. So Jesus is the one who enjoys priority of place, primacy of place, prominence in the story of creation itself. 
And that's because Jesus is the beginning of creation. That word beginning is the word arche, and it's the word we, we use to talk about uh, the origin of something. It's where it starts. And so one of the things that's being said here by Jesus is that he's the source of creation. He's, he's not just the beginning as though he were a created thing, the first of many created things. No, he is not a created thing. He's an uncreated one. But he is the source of creation itself. It's out of Jesus Christ that creation comes. He is the agent of creation with the Father. And Jesus is not only the one who sources creation, it comes out of him, but he also sustains it. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 would remind us of this, that, that it's Jesus Christ who upholds the world that God has created. That matters to us because it reminds us and it reminded the Colossians that when we are prone to think we have everything in control, that we hold this world in order, actually, we don't have control of anything. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who sustains the order of the world so that it might accomplish the Father's plan. So Jesus tells us who he is, and then Jesus tells us what he knows about his church. And this is a hard truth for us to bear, but I want to say it just as plainly as I can. Jesus knows that this church, Laodicea, is useless to his mission in its present state. Jesus knows that this church, Laodicea, is useless in its present state. What Jesus Christ has to say about his church at Laodicea is not a, it's not a declaration that he doesn't love them. And it's not a statement that they are beyond his saving grace. But it is a reality check. It is a strong, harsh word to say you have gone just as far as any church could go and still be associated with me. That's hard for us to fathom because we might look back and remember that Jesus has already talked about the church at Sardis that's a church in the grave. They're a church that looked really good on the outside, but Jesus said, you're like a whitewashed tomb, you're dead on the inside. And one would think, how could it be any worse than what Jesus says to Sardis? But it is worse. There's not a harder word than what Jesus says to Laodicea. They are, they are abominable in his sight. They're useless to him. They, they cause him to have this vitriolic, Reaction. There's this guttural response to who they are because there's nothing about them that is in conformity to his will or dependent upon his grace. Jesus says to them in verses 15 and 16, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If we don't know the background about Laodicea, then we struggle at this point to understand what is Jesus talking about? Why would Jesus want anybody to be cold? I think we all understand that Jesus is talking about more than the temperature of water or liquid. Jesus is talking about their spiritual state. But if we don't know the background of Laodicea, then we wonder, well, why is it that Jesus would want anybody to be cold? We would think Jesus would want everybody to be red hot, right? Red hot in their devotion to him. And we wouldn't want anybody to be cold. So that doesn't make sense. Jesus, what is it that you're trying to say? But then remember, Laodicea doesn't have its own water. And all of its water is piped in. And it gets its water from two sources, from Colossae and from Hierapolis. 
And Hierapolis is that hot water of the hot springs with its redemptive healing property. And the water of Laodicea is cool and refreshing. And it causes there to be satisfaction and thirst to be quenched. The problem is not with the source. The problem is with what happens when they come together. And all of those minerals that don't settle and all of that water that doesn't cool and the mixture of this piping hot and this cold, cold come together and cause there to be something that is lukewarm and mineral filled. And if you drank the water as it mixed, there was a property that would cause you to vomit. You couldn't be sustained by it. In fact, you would reject it. And what Jesus is saying is that you are like that confluence of the waters. You cause me to, to reject you. You cause me to turn against you. And it's because you don't do anything useful to me. You, you don't have, like Hierapolis, the, the healing quality. There's nothing about you that's redemptive in terms of the balm that it brings to a physical need. And, and he says you don't have the refreshing quality of, of the water from Colossae. You don't come in and bring satisfaction and quenching to someone. What Jesus is saying about them is, listen, when I look at your faith, at your relationship to me, there are all sorts of things that you could produce in your life. There are all sorts of fruits that could come from your fidelity to my name. If you walked in holiness, you would produce all manner of blessing in your life. But when I look at you, you're devoid of every fruit of the Spirit. There's nothing about you that anyone would want to pick. There's nothing about you that gives life. You're a drain, Jesus says. Because of that, Jesus has to give to his church strong instructions about what they should do to turn their story around. And in verses 17 and 18, here's what Jesus does. He instructs his church to go on a shopping spree. Would you want to go on a shopping spree? I mean, wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it be something if somebody came and they said, listen, we're going to you pick your store, right? Everybody's got their place. You, you maybe Bass Pro Shop, Home Depot, with Dixie. I don't know. You know, but you got your place, right? And some of us we have different places than others. But some of you, you, you just want to go to Mark Smart, right? And and have at it. And what if somebody just said, you just think about it, just go on a spending spree, just go have at it, whatever you want. And Jesus says here, I want you to. Go on a shopping spree. But I want you to do it in my store, Jesus says. And there's some things I want you to buy. See, Jesus says in chapter 3 and verse 17, You say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus teaches in verses, verse 17, he teaches this, that sometimes what we have keeps us from seeing what we are. Sometimes what we have keeps us from seeing what we are. We define our lives in terms of possession and not in terms of position, the position that we have in Christ. And that's true for the church at Laodicea. You notice that Jesus doesn't say anything to them uh, about a lot of false teaching. That's something that he often charged the churches with, but that's not an issue in Laodicea. He doesn't talk to them about uh, the fact that they have, have left their first love, that they have quarrels within the body, because that doesn't seem to be an issue either. In fact, what Jesus seems to be saying to the church at Laodicea is, you don't have any spiritual problems because you don't have any spiritual life. You are so satisfied by your financial prosperity. You have such resources you can buy whatever it is that you need that you don't seem to think you need me anymore. Jesus is saying to the church, your problem is that you've defined your life in terms of what you have and so you can't see what you are. 
Let me just show you three ways that they've done this. The first is this. They have financial wealth, so they don't see that they're really poor. That's the first thing. Jesus says, you tell me, right, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, and poor. Wretched and pitiable, these, these words go together. And, and it's important that we understand that what Jesus is saying is not that the, the church at Laodicea is deserving of pity. Right? It's not that Jesus is saying we ought to feel sorry for them. They're in a they're in a sad state and we ought to we ought to we ought to go to them and, and give comfort to them. No, 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 no. Jesus does not want them to be comforted in the middle of their sorrow. Jesus wants them to be convicted in the middle of their sorrow. And in the middle of their circumstance, what Jesus is trying to do is say, listen. You're in a sorry state. You, you're just a sad, sad person, sad, sad group of people. I wouldn't want to be like you, Jesus is saying. Who would want to live this sort of miserable existence where you got everything you need in terms of financial resources and nothing in terms of the spirit life? Yesterday, we had staff retreat, and uh, we, we did a lot of talking and praying and thinking about uh, the new year and trying to get ahead of some things and think through goals that we have. And, and we started off the day by looking at Psalm 1 and thinking about what does it mean to be a blessed man. And one of the things we reminded ourselves of is that when the, when the psalmist in Psalm 1 talks about a blessed man or blessed person, he's not talking about someone who is um, blessed with great health or deep wealth. What he's talking about is a person that has a full life in God, a person who lives into the plan that God has for them, someone who has the real spirit life. Here's a reminder in Revelation 3 of a group of people who are attached to Jesus in name, but, but they're not attached to him in spirit. They've left that behind. They've determined that because they have such financial wealth, they don't have any real need. And Jesus says, you don't even realize you're poor. Jesus says to them, you have financial wealth and you don't realize you're really poor. Number two... He says this, you have the latest medical technology, but you don't realize that you are blind. You have the latest medical technology, but you don't realize that you are blind. Jesus says that to them. He says, listen, you, you talk about everything you have, but then you don't know that you're blind. Remember that they're a center of medical development. One of the things that they have there is salve for the eyes. People would buy that. In this city, paid great sums for that. You know, it's interesting that in 2022, so, so 2,000 years later, we have made overwhelming medical developments. The eye is one of those things that we're still learning a tremendous amount about. And the work that goes into solving ocular issues is, is tremendously important and complicated work. So think about that here they are at the cutting edge of medical knowledge in their own day. And one of the things that they're working on is to resolve issues of the eye. Because if you cannot see, you're incredibly limited in your usefulness in life. Your effectiveness in providing for your family. And Jesus says here, you boast about the fact that you have this city where... You're creating medical solutions for physical sight and you don't even know about your own spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness is something that every person outside of Christ deals with. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, that the God of this world, that's the devil, he's blinded the minds of those who do not believe so they believe not. And there's a call on our lives as the people of God to seek spiritual illumination, to ask for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. We often sing about this in church. In maybe a time gone before us, we used to sing that old hymn, 
Open our eyes that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Place in my hand the golden key that shall unclasp and set me free. Silently now I wait for thee, ready my God, thy will to see. Open my eyes, illumine me, spirit divine. And in our own day, we sing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. To see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love as we sing, holy, holy, holy. But God help them. The church at Laodicea doesn't sing those hymns. Because they don't think that they have a need. They're so focused on what they have. We have all the resources of medical technology. We don't realize that what we are is blind. And then number three, what they have is they have fashionable clothing. And so they don't realize that they are naked. They've worked so much to clothe themselves physically, to to develop this industry centered on this deep black wool that is produced in the region into great cloth that produces beautiful garments that they don't realize that in terms of their spiritual condition, they're naked. And of course, to be naked is to be covered in shame. It's to, it's to be flayed open, to be revealed, to be shown for what you really are. And when Jesus talks about their nakedness, it's, it's not as though they're in a state of, of, of humility or holiness or perfection. It's that they are in a state of miserable shame. And so Jesus tells them in verse 18 that there are three items that they should purchase from him. Number one, Jesus tells them that they should purchase the cost of a tested faith. He says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Now, you all know that in our own day, uh, when there is economic downturn, sort of like right now, right? When there is economic downturn, we begin to see more advertisements for gold. Don't you know that? You see them, don't you? You watch television and you see everywhere you turn, they're advertising buy gold. In the middle of the downturn, this is the time to do it. Buy gold, put stock in it. It's going to help you. Now, I'm not an economist and I'm not a financial planner. And so I can't tell you whether it would help you or not. But I do know this. I know that gold is seen to be something that's precious, that endures economic downturn, that has worth even when other things lose their value. And so it's interesting to me that what Jesus Christ says to a church that is, that is devoid of spiritual wealth, what I want you to do when you have no money is buy money right? You're poor. Could you buy money? Jesus, I don't think you understand. I'm limited on what I've got over here, right? I don't, I don't have deep pockets. I don't have a lot of resources. This is, you know, it would be lovely to buy gold in the midst of economic downturn. It would be great to buy shares of Microsoft and Apple at scores. It would be great to be able to invest in land because it's the one resource that never, they can't make any more of. But, I don't exactly have an extra amount here to do it with. And Jesus says, I know you're poor. So what you got to do is you got to buy gold. (laughs) These things don't seem to go together, Jesus. But notice what he says. I want you to buy gold refined by fire. See, what Jesus is saying here is that the gold that they need it is the gold of a tested faith. That idea of refined by fire, it's the suffering and the persecution and the endurance of hardship that is coming to them. Jesus says what you need is something that actually actually lasts and something that actually is worthwhile and something that really has value, a faith that is more than what you have. What you have right now is a faith that is nominal. It's in name only. It has no real effect in your life. What you need is a faith that would save and rescue and deliver and cause you to persevere. And the only way you're going to get it is to seek it from me 
in the middle of the refinement of hardship and difficulty and testing and trouble. Jesus wants us to buy from him a tested faith. And of course, to buy from Jesus a tested faith is to walk through the valley and trust him in the middle of it. Listen, when I say this, you are going to walk through the valley. That's not optional. The question is, will you trust Jesus in the middle of it? Um, Everybody endured a pandemic over the last two years. But there are a lot of people who are not better for it. They are bitter because of it. Both inside and outside of the church. I remember in those opening days, and and I don't know what it was like in Selma, but I do know what it was like in other places. I remember in those opening days, people, you know, quickly realized this is very significant. It's going to last a while. I don't know if y'all did this here, but we had that first conversation where we said, well, we'll shut down on two weeks. In fact, there's video of me saying we'll shut down for two weeks. And I knew all the time it was going to be longer because I'd looked at what some of the major churches in big metropolitan areas were doing. I thought, ooh, this is, this is not good. I didn't know it was going to be months and months and months. And in the middle of that, I remember people talking about, well, we're, we're going to get through this. We're going to be better for it. And I pretty quickly realized, well, we might be better for it. We might not be. It's all about our choice. It's about what we choose to buy. That when we walk through the testing, when we walk through the trial, when we walk through the refining fires of life, will we buy from Jesus a tested faith? A faith that's actually strong and actually valuable and actually worth something. Jesus puts on offer for us the cost of a tested faith and he puts on offer for us to buy the covering, number two, the covering of an applied righteousness. So Jesus said to them, you you have fashionable clothing, but you don't realize that you're naked. And so he says here in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. So Jesus, of course, is contrasting for them these two images. There's the image of the fashion industry in their own region with this deep black wool that's been turned into high-quality cloth that that they are known for in the world. And Jesus says, actually, what I want you to clothe yourself in is the white robe that I can give you, the white garment. The white garment is a symbol of his purity. It's a symbol of his righteousness. It's a symbol of his holiness. It's the way of saying, I want you to have an applied righteousness in your life. One of the most fundamental things that we have to understand in our walk with Jesus Christ is that Jesus is not coming into your life and mine to make bad people better or to make to make bad people good or to make good people better. Jesus has come into our lives to cause dead people to be made alive. And what Jesus Christ is interested in is not helping you to attain righteousness because you will never and I will never attain righteousness on our own. What Jesus is interested in is applying his righteousness to your life by faith. The great preacher Alistair Begg, one of my favorites, Alistair said, you can come to Cleveland. He's a pastor in Cleveland, Ohio. He said, you can come to Cleveland in the winter and it can be 20 below. And I can tell you about the wonder of this Patagonia jacket that I have. I can tell you about how insulated it is and and about how it will protect you from the weather and and how you will be caused to to be warm into your inner person if you put this on. And Alistair Begg said you can walk around knowing that that Patagonia jacket, it fits you, that that Patagonia jacket is available to you, that that Patagonia jacket will prevent cause you to persist against the howling winds of a Cleveland winter. But if you don't put it on, it's of no benefit. And Begg said, so it is 
with the righteousness of Christ. Jesus' holiness, his perfection, his righteousness are on offer to the world. Every man, woman, boy, and girl who has ever lived has opportunity to trust by faith in the precious offer of Jesus to sinners. But there are countless millions who know the offer of salvation and who choose not to put it on by faith. Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, because of your works, because you walk around thinking more about what you have and not about what you are, you are naked. You are shameful. You have given yourself to the way of the world. You are laid out there bare in your sinfulness and proud of it, Jesus says. And what I want you to do is come to me and be clothed in my righteousness. I I used to go to a clothing store in Pensacola. And when I was a young preacher and it's been, you know, I mean, I'm still a young preacher. I know that. But when I was a really young preacher, 19, okay, y'all think I'm young now. Just think 19. Boy, that was young, okay. At like 19, I knew, you know, I'm going to be in front of people. I probably need a suit. Let's go take care of that. And so I go to this local retailer and, and I buy a suit and then I got on a suit kit because sometimes you do that. And so then I went back and I bought another suit and I went back and bought another suit. And pretty soon they know you, right? They know you because they know you're going to buy from them. And they're delighted that you're going to buy from them because they're going to make a commission. And so we did this over and over throughout the years. And they saw me coming. They're ready for me. They're, they're ready to put me in something that they think would be a perfect fit because of what they can make from me. Jesus is the clother who doesn't care about what he can make from you. He just wants you to know the benefit of what he has to offer. Number three, Jesus says, I want you to come to my store and I want you to buy this. I want you to buy the clarity of spiritual sight. He says at the end of verse 18, I want you to buy from me the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Can't help but think about that story in the 10th chapter of Mark's gospel. You you remember it. It's a story of a double-touch healing. There's a, a man who's blind, and Jesus touches him that he might begin to see. But you remember, he didn't see perfectly, right, at first? Jesus said, what do you see? And he said, I see trees walking around. Of course, what he saw were people, but, he's, but he doesn't see perfectly. And so it's not clear. And so he can't really make this out. And Jesus touches him again, and his sight is fully restored. He sees everything clearly, Mark says. Jesus wants you to see clearly. He wants me to see clearly. The clarity that can be purchased from Jesus is a clarity about our sin. So one of the reasons that sometimes we abound in our sinfulness and we don't give things to the Lord is because we don't abide in the presence of Almighty God. If you don't abide in the presence of Almighty God, then you don't know conviction over your sin. If you don't abide in the presence of Almighty God, you may not even recognize the reality of your sin. If you stay in the places of the world, if you dwell among among people that are okay with immorality and godlessness, then over time you develop inside of you a tolerance for the ways of the world and you don't even feel conviction anymore. You don't even see things as being that bad. (laughs) And Jesus says, I want you to really see yourself for what you are. More than that, Jesus wants you to see him for who he is. 
Jesus wants you to see that he is the one who offers life and hope and healing and redemption. And the only way that can happen is for him to touch your eyes so that you see. So the question for us in the middle of these things is how do we do this? How do we buy these things from Jesus? That's where it That's where we come down to verses 19 to 22. You see here that Jesus calls his church to respond to his voice. He says in verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the first thing we have to ask here is how do you hear the voice of Jesus? I think verse 19 offers two ways. Number one is this. We hear the voice of Jesus when we recognize that we are sinners and how we have sinned against Jesus him. How do you know when Jesus is talking to you? Uh, You know, we sing, uh, there's that old gospel song, turn your radio on, right? All you got to do is listen for the call. Anybody remember that? The Gaithers did it. I mean, you know, it's a good song. Toe tapping. (laughs) Knee slapping. But then there comes the real thing about, well, that's good. I, I want to be tuned in to him. But how do I know when he's speaking? I think there are people in Scripture and and even maybe unto our own day who have truly heard the audible voice of God. I don't deny that. I just don't think that's commonplace in the life of God's people. I tell people all the time when, when Mary and I have gone through transition from church to church and One of the things we would love is to have had God audibly speak to us. This is where I want you to go. That would sure be a sign of confirmation, but it just doesn't work like that in our lives. So we have to look for his hand, and we have to listen to the prompting of the Spirit in our hearts. And we have to study the truth of his word. And we have to see, Lord, when we look at your book, what are the signs that we've actually heard from you? And one of the ways that we actually hear from Jesus Christ, that we hear his voice, is that we start realizing, recognizing that we're sinful people and we recognize how we've sinned. Jesus says in verse number 19, those whom I love, I reprove. That word reprove means to correct. It means that you and I are living a certain way and Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 that's not how you're supposed to live. We start to feel conviction about this thing. You you know, you remember back to your childhood, you remember what it was like for mom, dad, grandmother, grandfather to to come into your, your space when you're doing something and say, stop doing that. We don't do that. And before we even hear the words and can comprehend them, what do we get? What, is, what does a little kid get? They get the hand swatted away, don't they? When they're going to reach up for the eye on the stove, when they're about to put their hand into the electrical socket, they get the hand popped away to let them know that's, that's a wrong move. And they may not understand what that electrical socket can do or how that, that eye on the stove can burn, but they understand it's something they shouldn't do again. And so it is with us when we start to feel conviction in our hearts, when we start to know that something we're doing isn't right, then that's proof that Jesus Christ is speaking. He's correcting. He's reproving. Number two, how do you hear his voice? You hear his voice when we face the consequences of our sin, and it helps us to see the love of a just God who wants to help us. Jesus says, those whom I love, first I reprove, I correct, and then I discipline, I pour out consequence. When you and I start facing the consequences of our actions, no matter how great or small, 
And the consequences don't cause us to be reviled. We, we don't turn against them and say, it's somebody else's fault. But we start going, you know what? I'm, I'm responsible for this. Then that's the proof that Jesus Christ is speaking. And so in the middle of that, that begs this last question. How do we open the door to Jesus? Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And so Jesus says in verse 19, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. I don't know about you, but I want to know that kind of communion with Jesus Christ in my life. If what I am is poor and wretched and miserable and blind, then what I want is a fullness of life in God. What I want is to know his clothing. What I want is to know his provision. What I want is to know his sight. What I want to know is his fullness of life. And if to know that is to know the presence of God, then I want to know how to open the door to his presence. So let me just tell you two things. You want to know the presence of Jesus. You want to open the door to him in your life. Do these two things. First, turn up the heat on holiness. Turn up the heat on holiness. Jesus says, be zealous. That word zeal, to be zealous, is to be passionate, is to be fervent, is to be committed, devoted. Jesus says, you want to open the door to me, be zealous. Turn up the heat on your holiness. Pursue me. You haven't practiced holiness in a while? Start. You haven't been as fervent in your devotional life? Start. You haven't prayed as often as you should? Start. You haven't put away that sin and caused it to be crucified? Start. If you'll start practicing holiness, you'll position yourself to be in the presence of God. So one, turn up the heat on holiness. Jesus says, be zealous. Number two, he says to repent. So here's what we say. Let that hot holiness bring the impurities of your life to the surface. So you can deal with them. Listen, every one of us, every one of us has got stuff in our lives that we need to deal with. It doesn't matter how old we are, how young we are, how long we've walked with the Lord, how little we've walked with the Lord. It doesn't matter. Every one of us, until we go to the other side of glory and are made perfectly right with God in Christ, every one of us has got stuff we need to work on. And if we'll turn up the heat on holiness... And let it bubble away in our life. The things that are impure will start coming to the surface. The thoughts, the words, the deeds. And as they do, we can deal with them. And open the door to the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. Jesus doesn't have anything good to say about Sardis. It's as bad as it gets. And yet Jesus offers to them a word of hope. Brother Farrell.